left and don't give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Cause this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go Hello, salutations, <laughs> New Haven, salutations, Connecticut, salutations to the world. Uh, we've got a show today where we're going to talk about low reading scores of black and brown children in Manchester and Connecticut and across the, 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 the room, <laughs> the world, right? But anyway, I'm going to start by introducing our, our colleagues in the list that I have. So we have uh, Randy Watson who is a member of Moral Mondays and part of Black Veterans Group in Connecticut. And he asked, I'm going to come to him first, and Rhonda Philbit, who is retired now from the Manchester Public Schools. And then I'll go to Robert Codel and Diane Cleary. Uh, and what will happen is I will ask each of you to introduce yourself quickly and give us your passion, and then we'll start right on the, on the show. Uh, Randy, you're up, sir. Uh, yes, my name is Randy Watson. I'm a 50-year veteran in Manchester, Connecticut. And I think um, the reason why I'm here today, because I'm here to talk about the low test scores and also the school-to-prison pipeline pertaining to the low test scores. So that's what my passion is about, seeing that I'm also a grandfather with three three grandkids that's in the system. So what I want to say is, Everybody, when they read the data, they read it differently. Some people just read it to see if their kids is passing. I normally read it to see if the black and brown kids are on the same level as the white kids, in which clearly that they're not. So I'm a little disturbed still over the reading scores of the kids, not only in Manchester, but across America, because Dr. Jawanza Kanjufal says if you if the if you can't read on an eighth grade level, then we're failing. And that's where the school to prison pipeline come in at. Rather than teach the kids how to read, we're building more prisons. So that's why I'm here today, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. And then somehow it's it's hard for me to believe that you said you were the grandfather of three. Huh? Yes. We're gonna have to check that out. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh Rhonda, uh you and I are old friends and yep. uh, Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so good morning, good morning, good morning. So I am newly retired from Manchester Public Schools. As a matter of fact, I retired uh, this past June. But um, I'm, I'm retired from the school district, but I am not retired from equity work. And equity work is my passion. And um, where that becomes <laughs> evident, even though I was an educator in Manchester Public, school, Public Schools, I'm sorry, for 27 years, I was also an educator in general for 38 years. Um, however, my passion is evident because I opened or started my own business um, where I, it's called Multiple Perspectives, where I will facilitate DEI and uh, belonging, DEIB trainings um, and consultations. So my work still continues. Um, they haven't put me out to the barn yet. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I'm also the president of the African-American and Black Affairs Council in town. So my work continues. So all my passion. And I want to say thank you for having me on today. We love you. Been a guest before. We love having you here, Rhonda. And uh -huh. now we'll go to Robert Kotal. Dr. Kotal, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
or Robert Cotto, uh, recently finished uh, my PhD uh, at University of Connecticut. So shout out to University of Connecticut. Um, and I've been working with uh, families, educators, uh, also students in Hartford and other cities, sort of confronting different types of inequity, ways that they face it. And that's part of my research and part of my work. Uh, and I've been doing that for quite a while after teaching uh, up in Bloomfield, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, I'm just here to talk about, you know, what folks are saying about what what does inequity look like uh, for in their space and the place that they are right now. What is, you know, how do they understand that? And, uh, you know, just thinking about like what we're looking ahead. I, I uh, big shout out to uh, now she's passed, but Diane Kaplan DeVries, who I worked with and had a lot of conversations with, who was part of the CJEF case, the Connecticut Coalition of Justice Education Funding case. Uh, that sort of we can talk more about that, but uh, seeing where you know where do we go from here, right? So that's why I'm here today. Thank you for having me. Definitely, definitely. And uh, Diane, hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, um, Dr. Diane Click. Here, a pleasure to be here. My passion is and continues to be to do whatever it takes to eradicate racism you know, system-wide, through a systems approach. And my commitment is to help people recognize and see that who they are personally informs what they do operationally. And so I think we have to get into the hearts and minds of the educators because we have to begin to change mindsets. There's no, no issues running a building, right? That's what we do well. We run it well operationally. But then it falls apart because who we are informs what we do and how we execute those policies. And so I think it's so important that we think personally and personally first so that we can adjust operationally and do right by all of our students. So one of the reasons that I, I brought us together and I, I, uh, I think, uh, Diane, you hit it on the end and, and Rhonda as well and everyone on this on in the show will deal. To me this is racism one oh one. It's been going on for over hundred and seventy years in America. Black and brown children, immigrants, special education children, poor children have always gotten less. It's actually twenty three billion dollars less per year. Wealthy white, predominantly white schools rather get $23 billion more a year. So we'll talk about some of that. But I'd like to go to uh, Robert for a minute. Robert, could you give us a little history maybe of the CJEP case and, and and where we're at now? Could you help us out with that? Sure. So uh, just the CJEP case, um, I want to say it's uh, originally came 2003, four around that period of time. Uh, and it was a uh, contest to the state of Connecticut's uh, sort of creation of adequate funding for schools. And that, you know, it sort of sat in court for a little bit. And then once it did go to court, um, it got some really, I would say, sort of problematic uh, review by a judge in particular, um, who actually I think went to a, one of the military academies, I believe, believe it or not connected to uh, Mr. Watson. Um, but I did write a little bit about it, and it was sort of on the low end of interpretation of what was happening. And basically, the, that particular judge found that, uh, you know, Connecticut, that judge felt that the Connecticut schools had sort of adequate 
resources for kids, particularly in schools with uh, Black, Latino, Asian American students, um, simply because, not because of the numbers or any statistics or any sort of like um, in, sort of views of how families and students felt, but felt that because simply there the were desks and books and windows and teachers, like literally real simplistic view of what schools had in them. And that was a sufficient amount of funding. And then it went to back to the court and they said they sort of agreed with that sort of um, that simple analysis. And, you know, it basically it's sort of, I would argue it set back what we believe are is adequate funding and what is an adequate education for uh, the kids in Connecticut and sort of lowered the bar, so to speak, on, uh, you know, what we believe, uh, you know, schools need and kids need in schools. Um, and, I, you know, I've written about that and other folks have written about that, but that's sort of like, you know, where the, where, where we at at the moment. Um, and interestingly, this is sort of a uh, last point I'll make is, uh, you know, test scores were brought up in that court case and said, you know, we have testing. It shows us that the kids aren't doing well. So the schools should be doing better. And it sort of dissuaded, sort of moved away from the idea that, well, maybe the test scores aren't, they're part of how we, how, you know, how we work and what we do in schools and the systems, but also we also need resources. So it's sort of like the case, again, moved away from, you know, let's look at the resources and wh whether we're providing resources more for kids that need them. So I'll leave it at that and, and, and turn it over, but that's just like a brief, a quick understanding of that, that particular case. Again, CJF uh, versus REL. Uh, and I think the decision came in about 2016, 2017, something like that. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, yeah. So again, it's set back uh, school funding in, in Connecticut. Yeah. And if we thought about it in 2005, the first part of that case, uh, the court ruled that there is inequity, that black and brown and special education children in Connecticut were not receiving a high quality and equal education. And then the question was for the next part of that case, for the next pretty much over a decade, was how much is the state responsible? And that 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 decision was a four to three decision, very, very close. And that decision left us with saying that the state is not responsible. And later on we'll talk about they did the judge did say who should be responsible, and it will be our legislators. But I wanted to go to Rhonda, talk about about this impact as you, you, you not only are an educator, uh, you're, 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 you're an activist in your community for black voices. What is it? Talk to us a little bit about that. What does it feel like when we know that a lifetime of injustice has happened to our children? Yeah. So, um, so for me, when I, I think about that, uh, a, Sometimes people are under the impression that, well, you know, children go to school and um, and they learn um, they learn to read, they learn to write, they learn to to uh, to compute, do mathematics. But to me, the reality is is that when we talk about children of color, especially um, black and brown males, their education is how the type of education that they get is how they are going to be able to sustain themselves for the rest of their lives. So it's really, it, it's more than, um, okay, well, uh, this child is, is not doing well. It, it's more than, 
what's in the curriculum. It's real to me, it's really about the mindset that when this child graduates from um, X school district in the 12th grade, are they really going to be able to sustain themselves? Are they going to be able to fill out um, a, a job application? Um, so education is is very important. And I, and I just want to say this. So um, everybody knows that you know I'm retired and I am of the particular age, retirement age and, and all of that. But um, you know, as a as a black person, a black woman, it, it was always instilled in me that um, education is something that people can't take from you. Education is something that will um, help you to move along um, in your in your life. So when I think of what's happening now, um, you know, Randy often talks about the the data in uh, in Manchester as far as reading goes. You know, when I think of that, to me, um, I see it as you know, this is really a crisis. Like, how come, um, you know, what's being done about it? And not only, and I'm not just saying that it's happening in Manchester, it's happening across the country, you know, um, but what what are those who have the power to really make a difference? And Jesse, I totally agree with you in terms of the legislators. And then, of course, the money that it will uh, that it will cost to back legislation. You know, what do they? How do they see this? And, and it's to me, it, it saddens me to know that people feel like uh, Dr. Cotto just talked about when he said, "Well, it's you know, it's adequate. They have books. You know, they have teachers. They have a classroom, and there are windows." You know, um, it, when I hear that, it, it saddens me because education is so much more important than that. So that's. That's my, um, you know, my opinion about what, uh, in, in terms of uh, the question, um, Jesse, that's my response to that question. Diane, uh, I want to ask you, because you're not only involved in the K-12, to you're involved in the adult education. What has this impact of inequity had on, on black and brown children in Manchester? I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a profound impact and the impact is revolves once again around not knowing who's in front of you and just taking for granted that you know the students in front of you based on your own experiences. And I, so that, that's my, that's my plea. That's my cry. That's what I'm always going to say. If you don't know who's in front of you, then you're not going to understand how to um, effectively meet the need of that particular student. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like um, um, conditions matter, you know, environment matters and knowing who's in front of you also matters. So a shark is going to lose against a lion on land. Just like a lion is going to lose against a shark in water, right? So if we're not playing on a leveled playing field, which we're not, one is bound to outdo the other. And so you have to make the conditions equal. And if you don't understand that, and if you don't see that because you don't about yourself, guess what's going to happen? The kids of color are going to fail because the majority of the people who are in front of them don't look like me. And and I, I'm sorry, I, I think that, all of that has to matter. 
So, and what we center is what we think we know. And what we think we know is based on what's in the media, you know, or what the perception is or what society says about who we are as a people. And then we base it all on, we base it all on that. So, and I, I just can't say that enough, you know, um, and even with the test scores, you know, to me, mastery is a misleading goal. And just because I taught you something doesn't mean that you're going to learn it right away. And we come in with an invisible backpack of stuff, of stories, of experiences, of trauma that matter. You know, and so learning isn't linear. It's not linear. And so, and test scores are based on the experiences of those who live in Ohio or Iowa. I don't even know which state it is. And I know I just said a lot, but there's a disconnect. And you have to know the students, you know, that you're, that you're, that you're teaching. And you have to know what you know and what you don't know about what you know and don't know about the kids in front of you. And that's what you have to focus on. So it's it's personal. It's all personal. People have to do an archaeological dig and excavation of themselves every day, you know, before they get in front of the kid, because that matters. Because how you show up is what the outcome of the student's experiences, personally, interpersonally, um, technically, and academically. You know, all of that matters. So, no, definitely. All of it matters. I want to take us to Robert for a minute because Robert did a TED talk for us a number of years ago at CCSU, and he talked about democracy and, and public education in Connecticut. Robert, what are the two districts that uh, are mayor-controlled in Connecticut? Yeah, so for folks that don't know, mayoral control of a local school board is when the mayor has either the uh, the majority or the entirety of uh, ability by law to pick or select the board of education members. You know, most towns around America in Connecticut, they can people can vote for their board of education, right? You can vote for like the you know five to nine people that are on a board that oversee uh, how local school local public schools are are, are set up. So in Connecticut, uh, Hartford has the majority of board of ed members are appointed by the mayor who is elected. And uh, similarly in New Haven, I don't know if it's the majority, but I think it's at least four out of the, the seven or nine, something like that. Um, the mayor also gets to appoint part of the board of ed. And so what's interesting about it is like, you know, New Haven and Hartford, these are places where, you know, people of color, uh, you know, Latinos in particular and Hartford are the plurality uh, along with African-Americans and Caribbean folks um, New Haven, uh, I don't think it's as, as similar, um, but you have places where people of color can't actually choose the people that are in charge of their public schools. And so you're like, wait a minute, why does every other town, why does every other city, uh, you know, around the country, and it's places like Chicago, like New York, big cities with people, lots of people of color don't always get to pick who the leaders are for their public schools. And it's like, well, wait a minute. 
So that then what does that lead to, right? Well, it leads to situations in a place like Hartford where the mayor decides, well, we're not going to give a million dollars to the schools that it needed. We're not going to add any more money to the schools that are needed. And so, um, you know, Bridge, Bridgeport has similar issues. They don't have mayoral control. Um, but uh, it's sort of the point is that, um, you know, when we talk about systems, right, and we talk about funding that comes from the state, from the city, when you have things like mayoral control and other sort of situations that sort of limit uh, public access and, and sort of control over uh, things like public schools, then you start to go down a path where people don't have a say, right? We always think, oh, well, public schools, people have a say and what, you know, what, what gets taught, what gets, you know, the books that are on the shelf uh, and so on and so forth. And that's not always the case. And I think it's important to look at these, these examples and why are there specific examples like Chicago, New York, Hartford, um, where the people actually don't, uh, don't get, and I was uh, just to be my positionality. I was an elected person on the Hartford board of ed with the mayoral control, uh, mayoral appointed majority of the board. So I sort of had a front front row seat to how the mayors can control uh, the school board, right? And so what you can see, and I'll, I'll pitch my own research later on is, well, why is the mayor of a town or even a governor pushing more for like, let's say downtown development? Why are we making a new stadium? Why are we making a new building for luxury apartments and condos? But the schools don't have what they need and they're not being fixed and they're not being, uh, you know, the teachers aren't getting the, the compensation that they need to stick with the district or the kids may not have the paraprofessional that they need and so on and so forth. So it's sort of like, you know, this top down sort of look uh, as to why we have some of these inequities and then why they continue as well. We got to look at those structures. Right. So I'll turn it over. I've talked enough, but yeah. I'll turn it over to folks that are in the classroom cool. and working with families. It's important to know that there's no district of a majority white community that where the mayor controls the board. That's important. That's not just, not just in Connecticut. That's nationwide. We have this issue across the country. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that up because Robert's right. Mayors decide. So if, if they increase funding for a school, for our schools, then they might have to increase property taxes. Increasing property taxes may very well get them unelected. So often schools suffer in those communities. And when people can vote for the local board of education members, they can at least advocate and fight that kind of thinking over there. But I'm going to come back to Randy for a moment, because Randy, as a grandfather. Yes. Right. As a grandfather of, of, of your children. What is it you hope that the Manchester Public Schools, that the state of Connecticut would do, that America would do, not, not only for your grandchildren, but as a black veteran has served this country? What are your expectations? What, do you, what are you asking of our public schools to do? Well, I'm asking public schools to get more resources for education rather than build more prisons. Because as a grandfather of three, there's also a, a saying that one out of three will be incarcerated. And so that's why I'm asking for more resources. So the resources, more resources. And when we're thinking about this uh, in, in I, I think it's uh, 64, it could be 68, but we had uh, the uh, Ch Child and Education Act and it promised, it promised, it recognized the inequity in right. impoverished communities, 
not just black, not just brown, but you've got poor communities, white communities in Appalachia, in Mississippi, in Alabama as well. And and the legislators and the uh, President Johnson's government signed an act that said the elementary and secondary act would give 40% more money to those schools. Right. As soon as the act was signed, that money was never delivered. Uh, we're literally talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billion dollars. When Dr. King went to Washington for the March on Washington, he said the Negro is not here to, to, to ask, ask, ask for a check. We're here to collect our IOU. And right. I, I think it's important to know that children in this country, the reason we're referring to our schools now as a school to prison pipeline, right? that we have, have school districts that are, are, are hundreds of billions of dollars uh, behind. And that means the tutors, that means the social workers, that means the librarians, that means all the bells and whistles over yes. there. So Rhonda, We've, you and I have talked about the importance of culturally relevant pedagogy, uh, and you do that work, and you did that work in Manchester. Well, how does funding relate to that? Well, you know, um, Jesse, in terms of funding and the resources that are needed, uh, it's been my experience that when we talked about um, or did work with cultural, culturally responsive teaching, it it was always siloed. And even though, um, it, let's say for example, Manchester Public Schools um, <clears throat> were able to purchase books where children can see themselves and see their identities and um, can, can read about their stories and they could read about people who have um, made major contributions who look like them. But at the same time, let's say if we're talking about those books or the reading materials, there it, it wasn't included in the general curriculum, like the general ELA curriculum. And um, for me, I, when we talk about resources um, and we talk about maybe some of what we hope is that if we could take those books and add them to the general curriculum where when you talk about cultural responsive teaching, where it happens every day, as a matter of fact, and where it, where it, it comes naturally to um, educators, white educators, then um, I think that would be that that would be wonderful because you know when I think about culturally um, culturally responsive teaching, I think that um, you know for a long time we with children read books their identities um, as far as children of color are concerned were historically excluded. And, um, and at this particular point in time, even though there are many, there are many books available now and uh, children are being exposed to those, um, to those stories and those, you know, and those books, but at the same time, it's kind of like, or it is the work that we do over there but it's not so much included in um, the general uh, the general work or the general curriculum. And, um, and of course, 
that's obvious to children. It's like, we're learning about it. Why could we read the books over here about people that look like us? So why isn't that included in the general um, curriculum? Why isn't that included in the reading program, let's say? So um, I, I think that when we talk about culturally responsive teaching, that, um, you know, that we have to, I feel that we have, just in education in general, we have a, a moral imperative to do uh, what's right by all kids, but especially those kids who have been um, excluded. Their identities basically have been excluded um, traditionally or historically. And, and if we thought, if we think about this piece, uh, Rhonda uh, was really referring to Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, uh, um, Called, called by the International Literacy Association and the National Councils of Teachers as the grandmother of multicultural education. And she talked about books as being mirrors where we see ourselves, windows where we see others, and sliding doors are where we can walk in the shoes of others. Now, the interesting thing about Dr. Uh, Sims Bishop's work is she did show, her research shows that black young black boys who were reading books that had black characters in them, their comprehension scores improved and vice versa. So white boy scores dropped when they didn't see themselves in that in those books. But she also looks at those, those windows and she says, that's the way we learn about others. That's how we come to respect each other. We need to be reading and seeing those, those windows of everyone. And every once in a while, we got to read a book that's so powerful that we feel we are walking in that person's shoes. So we can't miss out on that. That's important. And Manchester has has worked on that mm -hmm. over over this mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. What I it's Jesse. Not oh. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm go sorry. Ahead. I, I go ahead. Diane. I just wanted to say a, a couple things in response to Randy and Rhonda says because they're they're on target, and I agree. With when he, he talks about more resources. However, we're not short on resources with regard to money. That's not, those aren't the resources we're short on. It's the how-to. It's, it's the, it's the uh, pre-service learning. It's the professional development so people can understand the fact that Manchester is a different town. When Randy and I grew up in Manchester years ago, it was less than 2% students of color. Now, Jesse, we are at 70.1% students of color. We are a different school community. If we don't change and adjust with that evident difference, you're going to see much of the same. You're not going to see a change in the test scores. So the resource has to be in how we do what we do. So, and one thing that we are doing in Manchester, we have, and Rhonda sort of alluded to this, we have these read-alouds now, where it, all the way through eighth grade, we'll eventually get into, ten, into high school, where students do have an opportunity to experience windows and mirrors. The, the struggle, Jesse, is, it's... Um, as Rhonda said, it should be an integral part of the curriculum. And it should be done every day, not two days a week. And parents shouldn't have shouldn't be allowed to opt out because there are parents who opt out. 
or at least they try to. The superintendent's been super about it, and nope, you can't opt out. But there are those who think that that's too woke, not even knowing what woke means, but that that's too woke, and they don't want their children to experience that. The superintendent says, nope, your child will have to go through and participate in the read-alouds. But the read-alouds are about different. It's about about lifting up the most marginalized and so that they can see themselves in what they read. You know, so I just, I wanted to sort of respond, add on to what was said. So, and and the the issue, I I do look at at funding and I look at funding this way. So in our Mm -hmm. literacy center at Central, we have children uh, from about 12 different districts that will come here. And all of the children that come here get a fully certified teacher. Uh, they're immersed in a beautiful environment with diverse books. And all of the children that come here, they, 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 it's the first time in those 12 districts that all of those families and children could say we had equity. Because the difference when, when we're not looking at when, my, when the students that come from Farmington, they have one-to-one tutoring, multiple ways. They have all kinds of services, counselors, educational psychologists. They don't wait years to get identified if they're having some special education issues. They get this right away. They have smaller class sizes. They have teacher's aides. So what, what I'm saying, Diane, that when I'm looking at, at New Britain, for a number of years, they didn't even have reading teachers any, any longer. Now they just brought them back. Uh, my, my students in Hartford, uh, you're not a reading intervention teacher if you're teaching 27 students in one room. That's not that's not what happens in Farmington, Simsbury, Madison, and Darien. In those communities, those affluent communities, those children, as soon as they start, start falling behind, are given intensive services that my my urban districts, my poor districts, just can't do. And, 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 and that's what I'm talking about. The federal government promised. They understood this. In the 60s, they understood this, that they needed to increase funding to priority schools. It's the same thing. I was in, I was at the European Reading Conference talking about this issue. And, and they, when I told them about our literacy center and the way Connecticut Connecticut says the state is not responsible for giving every child in this state an equal and high quality education. It's not responsible in in that sense. And we'll come to that piece. But when I look at that, what I'm saying is, yes, when when I'm not talking about resources in in the the programs, the books, I'm saying, where are the intervention people? Where are the tutors? So when I'm in... In 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 pharmacy, but, but Jesse, what I'm suggesting, yes, go ahead. But what ahead, I'm then. suggesting is, so they get these people who are trained. But I'm telling you, if you do not connect with the kid, it doesn't work because they're teaching them the way they teach them or the way that they have been taught, and it doesn't always connect. You have to know who's in front of you, and I just think that that's the missing piece. I really, really believe that. I don't care how many tutors. Manchester is stacked and stacked with resources. And I don't believe that the disconnect is operationally um, um, the problem. I believe 
believe it's mindset. I believe it's expectations. And I believe it's what they believe and think of the kids in front of them. They have low expectations for our students. They don't believe that they can learn. And I'm not saying that's everybody. I'm generalizing. But I think that that's what the disconnect is. And so we, I don't care how much money we throw at a school or at, you know, a particular curriculum. It's not the curriculum. It's not the, the you know, the program that we use. I think it's the person that's executing the program. It's the person that is facilitating the program a lot of times because they make assumptions about who we are, how we learn. And I just, you know, again, not to downplay that resources aren't needed. I agree with you, Jesse. You know, you a lot of times know more than I do with regard to that. So I'm not downplaying that. I just want to lift up the fact that I think that we don't have enough people of color in front of people of color. And we don't do enough um, to educate the white staff in terms of who they are so that we can sort of lift up the fact that you don't know, you don't, you don't, you know, you're, you're teaching based on how you were taught. You are teaching based on what your lived experiences are. You're teaching based on um, what you experienced. I just can't say it enough. No, you said you, you, we, we wanted to continue to say it over there. And we want to look at the, that, that elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is 85% of the teachers in America are, are white. That's, all that, that's what they are. That's the elephant in the room. And you're right. Different experiences uh, in, in those communities and, and how they're educated and how they're trained over there. And, and, but we also want to, I want to look at who's becoming teachers right now, the pipeline. So I can tell you that schools of education across the country are down in people entering into the into our profession down anywhere from 25 to 50 percent we just don't have the numbers to replace even those white teachers we don't even have have the numbers to do that and i agree with you we need yeah. to so, yeah we need to so we've got a pipeline that's broken we've got teachers that you know to give you an example, Tom Franklin sent me in an article today. Apparently, all the teachers in Lithuania are going on strike today for, for better wages, for better working conditions. You know, the whole nation's going on strike and they're going to close everything down uh, today. And, and we just don't seem to get there. So we know that when we look at the adjustment for inflation for salaries, teachers are paid 13 percent less than they were paid in 1980. That's what we know. Over there, wow. my teachers are now leaving with about forty thousand dollars worth of student loan debt, which is like a house. You know, by the time you pay it off, you're paying it off in thirty years, and and it keeps you from getting the car, it keeps you from getting the house, all of that stuff. But I'm not certain. So I think Diane, you're on to something here. What can we do? And and Robert, I'll go to you because you're our policy person. What can we do to to attract? a diverse teaching force and grow it. Do you have ideas? Well, I mean, uh, so I was going to say, you know, what Rhonda and Diane are talking about, you know, whether it be, I think I just wanted to throw out there that uh, I think it's fantastic that we're talking about like different levels of things. And 
you know, moving forward, just thinking about how they interact, I think is like real, real critical work to think about, you know? So in other words, yeah, it's about how, what, how we're teaching kids and what we're, what we're experiences we're bringing in the classroom and then sort of also connecting that to, you know, also the resource. I think that interaction of the levels of things, right? Like I think is super important because uh, some of my research, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, how do we bring, uh, you know, teachers of color into the mix? Well, part of my research looks at, well, why are folks leaving? And so uh, to give an example of, of what, what's happened, uh, let's look at Simpson Waverly, which I, I looked at as part of my research. Simpson Waverly a, was a neighborhood school in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, it had won a blue ribbon many years ago, had a black uh, principal, um, uh, James Thompson, I believe was his name. Uh, he went up to Bloomfield to become superintendent. And, um, you know, test scores had improved over his over his time period that it was there. And it had the highest percentage of black teachers in all of Hartford, Connecticut. Actually, I think it was the state of Connecticut as well. It was about 50% black teachers. So, I mean, I don't know. I knew some of the teachers that were there. I didn't know all of them, but I knew many of them. They knew the kids. They knew the neighborhood. They knew the people. They brought things to the table that connected with the community and in, in, in the kids that were there and the families as well. When I looked at, uh, so then what happened? Well, under mayoral control, under a situation in which resources were being shifted to redevelopment in Hartford, Connecticut, that school was targeted to be permanently closed, the building to be permanently closed. So not enough resources from the state, fewer resources from the city of, uh, of Connecticut, from the mayoral administration, and said, so we're gonna close that school. Wait, you're gonna close the school with almost the highest percentage of black teachers? that connect with the communities that are here. And maybe it didn't have sufficient resources at the time, but it's like, what are we doing here, right? Start to connect. Well, we we're, we may have limited resources, but we're gonna close this school with all, you know, 50% uh, black kids, about 50% Latinos, 50% black teachers. And you start to think about, let's connect. What are we doing here? Is that the way of how we, if, if I'm a young person, as a person of color that's saying, I'm gonna teach, am I gonna wanna teach in that district? Am I going to want to teach in that th these places who could the, under the people that control these schools, right? Or am I going to go somewhere else where I can get paid more, have a smaller class size, maybe work with people that uh, students of color and families of color. Maybe I'll go to Manchester. Maybe I'll go to Glastonbury. Maybe I go to East Hartford. Maybe I'll go to Windsor or Bloomfield. But maybe this isn't the place for me. And so that's the sort of thing you know that sort of looking at the the context of the ecology of what's happening in in different cities and in different places. Um, so. My my first response to you, uh, Professor Turner, is we got to start thinking about what are we doing that's not keeping people of color in classrooms that bring to the table the experiences that they've brought and the, the ability to have cultural competence in a class and teach other people how to do a better job that may not have those those skills. So that would be the first thing I would say is like, you know, we've in, in Hartford, you look over the last 10 to 15, 20 years has lost in particular black teachers. Um why aren't we looking at what happened? Where did they go? Did they all retire? Did they leave? Did they not make enough money? So, you know, that's sort of, I look at that level of like, you know, the district level, the state level. Um, and not only is it that we're not bringing in people, we've lost people and we've done it in ways that are, you know, we closed schools permanently. So people left, right? Or they retired. So 
that's one thing. But then moving forward, uh, uh, and I'll turn it over to other folks because maybe they have uh, you know other ideas. But you know, thinking about policy, you know, we're at a, we're at a position where uh, places like Hartford are saying we're going to bring in more teachers from uh, Puerto Rico. We're going to bring in teachers from the Caribbean, Jamaica, uh, to help uh, staff our classrooms. I don't have any problems with that necessarily. It's it's actually a replay of stuff we've done before in the last couple of decades. Um, but you start to think about, well, why aren't we doing more to grow our own? We have a grow our own program. We have grow our own programs where we say, you know, we have kid, we have young people in the community that know our communities that grew up here that can become teachers in our communities, right? Kids that are Latino, that are Puerto Rican, they're they're Caribbean, they're African American. Why aren't we doing more about that? There are some programs, and I'll I'll, I'll you know I'll leave it at that. But um, you know those pipeline programs. There's some there's some success that people have noted about that stuff. Um, you know why aren't we why aren't we doing more of that, right? Uh, but then again, it, it connects last to uh, you know if I'm a young person and I'm an African American, I'm a Latino person that goes to college, and I'm looking at what is my what is my career path. And I look at teachers that are struggling with big classes, not making that enough money, have to pay more for health care, where the status of being a teacher in my community isn't what it used to be anymore. And, and so am I going to want to go into that path as a career? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll pick something else that provides more funding, that that has better resources. So, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, put it out there to, for people to think about um, as we're sort of looking forward. So I'll turn it over to... Uh, to Randy and, and Diane and Rhonda, which may have you know their perspectives on this. So let me shift this for a moment, uh, because we 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 know that that uh, that when children are taught by teachers that look like them, they do better. Not only them, the other children do better. So the research is clear: if uh, children have one black teacher, just one black teacher. Black students' chances of going to college and succeeding in college improve, but so do white students. So we get that. So I want to shift when we went to, we talked a little bit about the CJF case and that four to three decision that I consider threw out children under the bus in the state of Connecticut, because it would have forced school districts to rethink about what they would do. It would have forced the state to support them with resources and training and all kinds of things could have happened. We had an opportunity to make a difference. And four out of seven justices threw out children on the bus. But they did say this one thing in their, in, in, in their defense. They said, this is not a court fix. This needs to be a legislative fix. So we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, Rhonda, Diane, Robert, we've been talking about it for a long time. So what, what I'm wondering is, don't we need a legislative movement? Don't we need to have a, it was a $2 billion surplus. If there was ever a chance to remake our schools, we had it this year and they didn't do that. So I wanna ask, I'll begin with Randy. Uh, are you willing to, to join the fight to, to, to make a movement, to move that legislature, to, to start making the changes we're talking about today? Not only fund them, but make the changes that Diane was talking about in retraining teachers, training them better. Randy, are you ready to join us? Most definitely. Yeah, you're, yes. you're, you're the Moral Mondays guy. You're the Black Lives Matter. You and I have yes. been on that line. Rhonda. Most definitely. And everything that Rhonda, Diane, and Robert said was definitely facts, and I'm definitely ready to join you. All right, because you know I'm, 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 
I'm going to start. I'm going to tell us we got to start marching. Yes, well, sir. Can you? What do you? Are, are you ready to join us for a legislative fight, a movement? Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll be there. Um, I'll definitely walk the miles. And if there's anything that you want me to say, just let me know. I'll be. I'll be there because this is really important. Because as I said before, we're talking about education, education for all kids, but especially those those children who have been excluded or those children who are struggling. But in the meantime, their education is the only thing they have that will sustain them. So absolutely, um, um, Dr. Turner, I will be there. All right, because you know I'm I'm getting ready. I'm going to Bishop Selders. I'm going to I'm going to AFT. I'm going to CEA. I'm, I'm ready to rock the house with this. Uh, uh, Robert, are you ready to drive us over at Trinity? You can get a couple of students, and, and they and they can walk with us. Are you yeah, ready to I'll, join us? I'll I'll be there, and I also say you know one thing that you know listening to Randy and and Rhonda and Diane, um, you know you're the voices that and the experiences that you bring, uh, they're not, they're not out there. And I, and I feel like, you know, I encourage you to write more. If you're, if you do stuff, send, send it over to me and I will, I'll share it on Facebook and Twitter, write more uh, about what you're saying, because I feel like it's there. These are sort of areas that we're not really exploring. So I would say I'm going to walk and I'm going to, uh, you know, go along and be there with other folks as well. Uh, to, to sort of share what your experiences are um, so people can understand a little bit better about what is going on. And you've got some good students over there. Diane, you've always been marching. <laughs> oh, for sure. You know I'll be there. You know I will definitely be there because I just, you know, look at what's going on even in New York, how they, uh, now they're eliminating the Lucy Calkins program. And to me, I'm not saying that she was perfect. She, she wasn't. She did not integrate cultural competence into her work but it's not about the program it's not about the curriculum you know that's not the only issue here the issue is those in front of the curriculum they keep blaming the kids it's like we're trying to fix the kids so yes i want to be i absolutely want to be on the floor and i want to be outside marching to let people know stop blaming the kids you get the kids you get and you don't get upset it's about those in front of the kids, you know? So, yeah, and I'm that, tired of hearing, I'm tired of, oh, they want to be heroes and try to fix the kids. The kids aren't the problem. They are who they are. You know, we have to adjust so based on right, what they need. Right so, now, I'm seeing the core uh, group of revolutionaries for movement to bring equity and justice to our public schools. And we got Robert Kotal's got that like that uh, like Trinity Action Lab, Research Action Lab over there. We should be able to do that. Uh, and, and it was interesting that Diane mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Lucy Gawkins and the reading writing workshop. Now we got the science of reading. I'm gonna tell you something. We've been throwing silver bullets, silver bullets at this problem for over a hundred years. And in over a hundred years, none of it has changed. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not excited about a science of reading. I'm not excited about all those programs. I want different training. I want, I want to reemerge in a new kind of, uh, of teaching force. And we definitely got to, we, we've got to diversify that force out there. But it really requires, I say, we can't let one governor, one legislator 
in that house over there on, you know, at the <laughs> down in Hartford at the Capitol, be able to go to sleep at night and claim they've been good and friends and custodians of, of, of education if they can't support equity for all. Schools need need resources. They and, and not only the resources in terms of curriculums and books, they need resources and training. And I definitely I can't see how we are not offering every black and brown brown uh, student who wants to teach in our public schools a free college education. I can't see how we're not doing that. So let's do the move. Let's fight the battle. Let me see what time, how much time we got. We're getting close. 30 seconds each for everyone. Last move. We're all in this fight. I'm going to call us together. Robert and I are going to go chase down Bishop Selders, and we're going to chase okay. down April 4th for the day at the Capitol. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to walk 12 miles from Central to Harford because this is the first school of education in the state. I'll do it, and uh, maybe I'll make Robert walk with me. <laughs> All right, 30 seconds each. We'll start with Randy. Well, I just want to thank everybody on the panel for uh, allowing me as a veteran to join us. Also, I want to thank Diane personally for helping me understand Matt Gary more better. He is aware of our situation, and he's willing to work. So I also want to thank her as well. Thank Robert, and thank you for allowing me to be here. Perfect, perfect. Rhonda? Yeah, and, and um, I just want to say the same thing. Thank you so much for um, having me on having me on the show again. Um, I hope that when this is shown that we'll have even more people who will definitely try to know and understand um, what we're talking about and why this particular issue is so important to us. It should be important to everybody. So thank you once again. It should be. It should be. Diane, come on. Oh, of course, you know, just thank you so much for, for having me. This was a, a great conversation. We need to keep it going because I think this is what's going to sort of empower us to, to stay the course and to fight the fight. And Robert, right. we definitely have to exchange uh, numbers, you know, so that we can connect. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. This is a blessing to be. The fist is up. Blessed the to meet you. The show is coming to an end. They're going to play the music. we got to move it. <laughs> And Rhonda's in the house, Diane's in the house, Robert Kotal's in the house, and you know the walking man's in the house. The revolution starts today. I'm ready. And I think they should be playing the music by now. <laughs> As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen, I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to go with what I'm giving. Got some inhibition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you